You are listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 13th of January 2020 on Monocle 24. This is Monocle's House View, coming up today. In four or five years' time, when whoever the leader of the Labour Party is, is campaigning to be Prime Minister, I think whether or not they will leave or remain back in the referendum will probably be much less significant than it feels at the moment. My guests Tessa Siskovic and Lance Price will discuss the UK Labour Party's leadership contest and the day's other news, including the politics of the power-sharing process in Northern Ireland and what does it really take for more people to get out of their cars and take up cycling. The US city of Seattle may have the answer. Plus we ask what role should business play in the battle against climate change? As much as every little bit counts, Some bits count more than others. The sorts of changes that need to happen to really tackle climate change have to come from two places, the government and businesses. I am Markus Hippi. Monocle's House View starts now. Welcome to the programme. I'm joined by Tessa Siskovic, author and correspondent for Austrian news magazine Profil, and Lance Price, former director of communications at Number 10 Downing Street. We'll begin here in the UK, where candidates to succeed Jeremy Corbyn as leader of the Labour Party are making their final pitches ahead of today's deadline for nominations. The candidates need to have the backing of at least 22 MPs and MEPs to make it onto the ballot. So far, four have qualified, while two others require a few more nominations. Lance, if I may start with you, how many people do you think will be in this contest by the deadline this afternoon? I think it's possible that one, Emily Thornbury might manage to get enough votes to be on the uh, on the ballot paper. Well, not on the ballot paper, but get through this hurdle towards getting onto the ballot paper. There's a another hurdle to cross yet um, but I think there are clearly four front runners who are the four people who've already uh, got the correct uh, number sufficient number of MEPs and MPs and that's Akir Starmer who was the Brexit secretary, uh, Rebecca Long-Bailey who's seen as Jeremy Corbyn's chosen successor and uh, two women on the back benches, Jess Phillips and Lisa Nandy. Tessa, what do you think are the most interesting candidates so far? Well I have always had a certain liking for Lisa Nandy because I see her in all this um events and also uh, in interviews always um, I think generally trying to understand why her constituents voted in Wigan for Brexit and what to do about that and she's a Remainer herself she's very pro-European and she's trying to bridge this gap Um, she's probably not going to be the uh, successor of Jeremy Corbyn this time around but I would really hope that she is being included in the next leadership on the on the front bench because I think people like her can actually give pride and authenticity back to people in the north by still having you know a pro-european uh, basic uh, background which is also important to keep in mind that the Labour Party is split in the middle. Do you have favourites, Lars? Um, I think both the women uh, in in or bo- both the uh, backbench women, uh, Lisa Nandy and Jess Phillips, are both very very strong candidates. I have a soft spot for Jess Phillips. She's very very blunt speaking. She's also um, a Remainer in a Leave constituency. But I think 
those sorts of things probably will become less and less relevant over over time in four or five years time when whoever the leader of the Labour Party is, is is campaigning to be prime minister I think whether or not they will leave or remain back in the referendum will probably be much less significant than it than it feels at the moment um, but Jess Phillips is she's she's bold she's courageous she's very straightforward and very honest in her responses when asked any kind of question um, and I think probably she the, the fact that she has this ability to get people to sit up and listen to break through and, and not appear like a politician giving politicians answers uh, is probably what the Labour Party needs to get a hearing at the moment. Exactly. Do you think, Tessa, do you think the Labour Party should try to learn something or is there something to be learned from other European countries, how the left has been doing in Europe? Are there some success stories? You must be joking. We have at the moment a deep, deep crisis of social democracy everywhere in Europe. The parties are on the brink of extinction. You have it in Germany, in Austria, in France. We are really not in a situation to say that we were actually on the continent. People were looking at Britain and at Corbyn's success thinking a real left has a chance to be heard uh, in the in the in, by voters and now people are not so sure anymore. I think you can see this also here now that Keir Starmer seems to be the, the strongest candidate because he seems to be moving the party not away from the left but into a more socially acceptable way of dealing with uh, topics and personal issues like the Labour Party was really suffering from the sectish uh, leadership around Corbyn. Yeah, I mean, I, I've got a lot of time for Sir Keir Starmer and I think he would be a very good leader but he is kind of an old-fashioned social democrat uh, of the kind who um, uh, across Europe has seen their support falling away and I just wonder whether or not people expect something different from their politicians these days and something different from their political parties um, and that perhaps we need to break free from that mould. Do you think anyone now out of these candidates would have what it takes to challenge the Conservative Party. There are, I guess there are many people who think that the Conservative Party has changed in the in the previous, in the last years. It's turned into a more populist party. Some call it a cult. Well, I think that uh, the biggest enemy of Boris Johnson and the Tory party at the moment is Boris Johnson and the Tory party itself, because they are sort of now in this populist uh mood and they have to just find out how actually to govern between all these things they promise and they won't be able to do that easily. The The Labour Party will have a hard time to get back on its feet, whoever is the leader. Um, and maybe Keir Starmer has a certain chance at the ballot box because he can sort of counter with facts and figures and keep his calm and, and not lose his temper. I'm not seeing this so much with Rebecca Long-Bailey at the moment because I'm not quite sure if she even wants the job. It was a bit early for her to be pushed into this position in my view. Lance, how do you see the legacy of Jeremy Corbyn within the party? Well, bizarrely, I think Jeremy Corbyn and Tessa sort of alluded to this earlier, um, did the Labour Party a service in that it kept it alive in the 2015 election, his first general election, when he did much better than anyone thought he was going to, sorry, the 2017 election, when he did much better than anyone thought he was going to do. Um, and he built the Labour Party up as a membership organisation, uh, the largest political party in, in Western Europe. And that was an impressive legacy. And he brought a lot of young people in. Uh, but his politics were, were hopelessly out of line with where 
of the British public actually are. And ultimately, he did the Labour Party a, a, a disservice. Um, and uh, I, for one, and I think many other people will be saying, you know, a, not a very fond goodbye. We're glad glad to see the glad to see the back of him. Um, and uh, the damage that he did to the credibility and reputation of the Labour Party, particularly over the anti-Semitism issue, which we won't just we went beyond anti-Semitism. It was a reflection of the kind of politician he is and the kind of politics that he sprang from. Uh, is something that's going to take uh, the new leader of the Labour Party a long time to recover from, and that's why I think we need a very clean break with the Corbyn years. How much power do Jeremy Corbyn supporters still have within the party when they're choosing the next leader? Well, we'll we will see about that now. Of course they do, and you have uh, a split practically in momentum also about politics. They're pushing for the Corbyn candidates without really having being so sure that their candidates are so good. I think it will be very complicated to see how the different um, trade unions, uh, who they will support when it comes closer and closer to the final candidate uh, vote. And so I think that there's a lot of young people who were really uh, happy to to go with Corbyn at the beginning and then saw that it doesn't work. So they have to now find a new person to attach their sympathetic feelings to, which is also not so simple at this choice of candidates now. So I think it's quite an open field at the moment and pretty wild in all the ranks. And it's wrong to think of momentum members and supporters as a block that mm, can just exactly. be sort of shifted around, herded around like, like sheep. They're individual members. They'll make up their own minds. Just finally, do you think the Labour Party will have to make up its mind about Brexit during this leadership contest? Well, it's going to have to make up its mind about the future relationship with the European Union, and it's going to have to hold the government's feet to the fire over Brexit and the uh, the, the long-term relationship with Europe. Um, but I, I, I would be very surprised under any leader whether the Labour Party will go into the next election suggesting we should rejoin the, the, the European Union. For now, that uh, that issue has been settled. Lance Bryce and Tessa Siskovic there. We'll be back in just a moment. But first, here is Monaco's Daniel Bage with some of the other stories we have been following today. Thank you, Marcus. Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has said his government will not rest until there are answers about the Ukrainian plane that was downed by Iran. Trudeau was speaking at a vigil for 57 Canadians who were killed in the disaster. Iran initially denied responsibility before saying it shot down the plane in error. Meantime, protesters have once again taken to the streets in Tehran, denouncing Iran's clerical rulers over that admission. Police in Colombia say they have foiled an attempt to assassinate the former FARC commander Timochenko. Authorities claim that the would-be assassins were intercepted and killed on a road in the west of Colombia. Police believe dissident left-wing rebels had ordered the attempted hit on Timochenko. And Italy's Prime Minister Giuseppe Conte has said that the results of an upcoming regional vote will not decide the future of the country's national government. Mr. Conte also told the daily newspaper Corriere della Sera that Italy's ruling parties will meet at the end of the month. Those are some of the headlines we're following. Now back to you, Marcus. Thanks, Daniel. This is Monaco's Houseview. I am Marcus Hippi, here with Tessa Siskovic and Lance Price. Let's next turn our attention to Northern Ireland, where UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson and Irish Taoiseach Leo Varadkar have arrived in Belfast to meet with the new power-sharing executive at Stormont. The visit comes after an agreement to restore devolution, which saw the Northern Ireland Assembly sit on Saturday for the first time after a three-year suspension 
suspension. The sides will now try to work out a plan to implement London's funding pledge. Lance, in the past you did work in Northern Ireland reporting for the BBC. How historical do you think this moment is? It's a significant moment. Um, I think you could overstate it. I mean, we are simply getting back to the kind of devolved government and administration in Northern Ireland that should have been there for the last three years and hasn't been because of the issues that they fell out over and the lack of trust between the two sides, which is the unionist side uh, represented to a large degree by the Democratic Unionist Party that propped up the last Conservative uh, administration and Sinn Féin, the, the principal representatives of the of the Nationalists. You have to, I mean, I, it was over 20 years since I worked there, but the same divisions are there, the same historical connotations that people bring up and the same lack of trust. So it's significant in that they are giving it another go um, and uh, moving forward. But uh, we're still a long way from the hopes that were invested in all of this with the Good Friday Agreement back in 1998. Tessa, you've been following this. This new story. How optimistic are you about all this? Well, I think nobody is really optimistic now. But in terms of Northern Ireland, what is interesting is that they could be, in a way, also winners of this whole Brexit process because they are the only ones who are staying in the European Union customs arrangements and parts of the single market. And when I was in Scotland in Glasgow a few weeks ago, they told me that the companies would like to relocate their headquarters to Belfast because then they have better trading opportunities. So we will see if maybe this combination of a lot of money from Whitehall coming to uh, Belfast and Northern Ireland in general, combined with the idea that everyone, of course, also will try to be very careful, but also getting more business traction maybe to Belfast could also not be so bad and if everyone behaves uh, politely to each other which is not always a guaranteed thing with Malin, with, with Aline Foster we will see if that uh, can actually be not the worst period in Northern Ireland but that of course is also not a very optimistic thing to say. Let's talk about Brexit in just a moment but but last something I have to have to ask from you is that obviously the return of devolution in Northern Ireland, Ireland means that the executive can now take decisions that have been stalled for years. What are the priorities? Well the priorities I think are things like the health service and the education service both of which um, have faced a very difficult industrial action going on. Those, those strikes have to be resolved uh, very very quickly, those industrial disputes, um, and uh, the investment has to go in to particularly mental health services, I think, in Northern Ireland are at crisis point, a recruitment of nurses and teachers, all those sorts of things, bread and butter issues that haven't been addressed because civil servants have been have been, have been been governing. Um, but, I mean, it's, it's worth noting just one thing, um, which uh, is relevant about today as well. Uh, there were certain decisions that couldn't be made by the politicians because of the fundamental disagreement agreements that they had. And today, same-sex marriage becomes legal in Northern Ireland, which would never have happened if the Assembly had been sitting for the past three years. Exactly. Well, let's talk about Brexit then. So, a new report from the Institute for Government says that the question over the Irish border post-Brexit could actually land the UK government in European court. Boris Johnson says there will be no new checks on goods moving across the Irish Sea, but Ireland and the EU insist those will need to be in place to protect the border. Tessa, do you think this will be discussed today in Stormont? 
Well, they, they are sort of on the dependent end of it in Stormont. They will not be the ones who negotiate in Brussels because the DUP as a partner of Boris Johnson has been dismissed. And uh, Sinn Féin, of course, doesn't even sort of <laughs> go and sit anywhere in Westminster and talks to anyone. So um, it will very much depend on the negotiations about the uh, trade agreement that the UK wants to strike with the European Union. The more they diverge from EU rules, the more the necessity of checks on goods will arise. And that is a very, very obvious uh, conclusion to anything that you have to say about future Brexit negotiations. And Boris Johnson has to calculate the risk of how much of uh, checks he has to um, take, uh, how much he can do without disrupting business severely. And it seems that he's if we take him seriously, which I think we have to start doing now, finally, um, then he really wants to uh, have a system, an economic system that is quite far apart from the European Union regulations. And that will mean that he's not going to get around uh, checks in the Irish seas. Last, do you think Boris Johnson will have to give in and accept these checks on goods moving across the Irish Sea? Well, at the moment, his policy has been what he once said rather... Um, uh, Frankly, he likes to have his cake and to eat it. Um, and uh, he uh, claims that there's no contradiction between what he signed up to and his belief that there won't be checks. But clearly there is. And that's going to have to be resolved one way or the other. There will have to be some form of checks uh, across the uh, across the Irish Sea. Otherwise, the withdrawal agreement that he's signed and which has now gone through the House of Commons uh, will be will be meaningless and will be will be defunct. It can't work any, any other way. So, yes, he's going to have to resolve it. Um, and, um, you know, we talk about democracy being restored, local democracy being restored to Northern Ireland, but on this crucial issue, uh, they have no say over it. They have to deal with it, as Tessa says. And we have this bizarre situation where um, a deal uh, which none of the parties in Northern Ireland support may actually be working to the advantage of the economy there. Exactly. When looking at those decisions being made in Stormont, how difficult is it for them to actually decide on anything when they don't actually know what Brexit is going to mean in the future for the region? Well, they don't have to decide at the moment on these issues. I mean, this is supposed to be, according to Boris Johnson, done in the next six months. Uh, but uh, nobody actually believes that. But don't forget that even if Britain doesn't have a trade deal in place um, and leaves in on December 31st, 2020, without this deal, the withdrawal um, uh, agreement is still in place, which means that Northern Ireland will be with Ireland in the EU Customs uh, uh, Union zone, and there will be special arrangements in place that protect uh, the green border between Northern Ireland and Ireland. And so I think it's too early now to get a panic attack because mm -hmm. uh, there is some time where drastic things have to happen, even if there is a no-deal Brexit and at the end of 2020, before the Irish Northern Irish situation falls completely apart, because the, the withdrawal agreement protects us from that. Lance, just finally before we move on, looking at Brexit and looking at Northern Ireland, how dangerous is Brexit for the stability of that region? Well, I think the, the dangers that people highlighted throughout the negotiations remain. 
um, and uh, they will continue to remain. They've shifted slightly in that the I think the nationalist community are probably feeling more reassured because of Northern Ireland staying within the customs union and therefore the relevance of the border uh, between Northern Ireland and the Republic uh, diminishes somewhat um, and the other so so a new risk is, is is developing which is the risk to the union itself and whether or not people will get used to this uh, common economic area if that's how it develops between north and south uh, which is therefore separate to a degree from the rest of the united kingdom and whether that develops into a political sense that uh, they feel more irish than british and finally, we turn our attention to Seattle and a story that comes from today's Monocle Minute newsletter. Over the past year, the West Coast city has seen the number of cyclists increase by almost 80%. The sharp increase is being attributed to three things. The temporary closure of a major highway, which saw people swapping four wheels for two. The city building more bike lanes and the rising popularity of e-bikes. Tessa, do you think this is the case of build it and they will come? People will actually cycle if you build the right infrastructure. Or is it rather about making driving more difficult so people have to find alternatives for getting around? I would say that all these measures combined are the best way to go. I mean, I cycle a lot in London and I came also here to the studios today on my bike. I think you have squeezed in in London between buses and taxis and nobody likes you on these lanes. That's not the way to go. Of course, London needs more cycle lanes so that people can actually be a little bit more safe. On the other hand, just to close down streets is not going to work. You'll have a traffic collapse. Everyone will be angry and uh, look for the next Brexit party to vote for. So if you look at the European experience in, in places like Amsterdam, the more bicycle lanes you build, the more people can take their bicycles to go to work. On the other hand, you have the far further east you go in, in Europe, you see that bicycles are not very popular. But partly this is not only due to a sort of, you know, more conservative uh, stands on, on, on society in general, but it's also that you have in places like Warsaw, you just have a lot of public transport that people were always used to use and they, not people didn't have their own cars uh, necessarily. And you have the same situation, strangely, for example, in Madrid, while you have about a third of people going on bicycles and on public transport and in cars in Amsterdam, you have in Madrid more or less 50-50 taking public transport or cars and no bicycles. So all the measures that we see have also to do with the local culture and if you bring together ecological sort of, you know, bicycle enhancing uh, options for people to, they will do it, they will take it. I think that's a really good point to make. Lance, do you cycle? I do cycle. I don't cycle in London so much simply because um, it is a very, very crowded city. There are more and more cycle lanes, which is good, but they're quite narrow and there are still lots of traffic, uh, lots of pollution, which makes it a pretty uncomfortable experience, actually. I enjoy cycling in the open air and in the countryside uh, where I can uh, see the views and I don't have to spend my whole life looking over my shoulder to make sure I don't get killed going around the next corner. Considering the climate change, do you think cities around the world, also outside of Europe, will actually have to look at this more seriously, how to make people cycle yes absolutely i think it's a very good way also for cities you know cities become greener anyways you know people uh, invent more 
pedestrian zones and cars are being banned from city centers. It's better for the for the it's better for the air that we breathe. And cycling is a good way to quickly get from one place to the other. You know, the fashion of e-scooters and all these kind of things. I think is is not go, going to be the real future. I mean, you can use them maybe for a bit, but they are also quite dangerous. Bicycling is healthy for people you can get from one place to the other in the same speed than taking uh, tubes and cars if it's a sort of uh, reasonable uh, distance so i think people will go more and more in this direction but it's not just about cycling it's also about uh, i think uh, the the enemy is the, is the car is is the, is the uh, is the polluting vehicles that we have on our streets but making cities and towns safe for pedestrians and comfortable for pedestrians i think is vital for the for the revitalization of city and town centers people love to go shopping in pedestrianized areas where mm. they can just walk from shop to mm. shop and they don't have to worry about the traffic coming up and down that's the way forward well the corner of london where i live myself they are pushing for cycling over there it's called the mini holland scheme and i know there's an incredible amount of anger over there from drivers who are who are very frustrated that they can't get around as easily as they used to before do you think we would simply need some kind of different new kind of incentives for people to leave their cars home well you there are incentives well you can sort of make it more difficult to drive cars You know, the congestion zone was a brilliant idea for London because people just do not go with their cars anymore because you don't want to pay 10 or 11 pounds or whatever it is. Nobody even thinks about this anymore. So um, these restrictive measures work. But also if you have a more, you know, if you have uh, better places to leave your bicycle and that are there, you know, to, to lock them up without mm -hmm. them being stolen in five seconds, which has a sort of broader picture of public safety and, and security in general, which I hope people will think a little bit more of now uh, in London in the, in the future, because at the moment we really have a situation where people cannot leave their bicycles at tube stations in many places in London because they will be stolen by the time they come back. So, Lance, just finally, what it would take for you to actually start cycling in London? You said earlier you don't find it comfortable. Well, I think there would have to be a, a lot fewer fewer cars on on the roads and more spaces uh, for cyclists that were completely separate from from the highways. Um, and that is happening. We're using making better use of the parks. We're making better use some sometimes of of um, uh, of sidewalks of uh, of pavements in order to be able to to do that. Um, but it's not just about the big cities. It's also about towns, smaller towns around around the uh, country where the public transport option isn't there, where there's just one bus a day, so people have to drive. And our dependency on the car has got to be broken down across the country. Tessa Siskovic and Lance Price, thank you very much. In a moment, we'll hear from Monaco's editorial floor for latest opinion on how businesses can truly act sustainably. You are listening to Monaco's House View. Stay tuned.
You are listening to Monocle's House View. I am Markus Hippi. Finally today, the question of how we can all be more sustainable in our everyday lives is only going to become more urgent as the world comes to terms with the realities of climate change. And while we can all usually choose to carry our groceries home without the aid of a plastic bag, such small changes really need to be matched by much bigger moves in the corporate sector. Here is our business editor, Venice. So we're nearly halfway through January, and I bet you, like me, are already struggling to keep to your New Year's resolutions. I also bet that one of those resolutions for 2020 had to do with being more sustainable. Maybe you promised yourself never to buy anything in plastic unless strictly necessary, or perhaps it was about flying less a la Greta Thunberg. But the supermarket always seems to be out of loose carrots when you visit, And your seamanship skills really aren't likely to be up to scratch in time for that little city break somewhere warm in February. Don't despair. Firstly, it's great that you're trying. Keep at it. But secondly, as much as every little bit counts, some bits count more than others. The sorts of changes that need to happen to really tackle climate change have to come from two places the government and businesses, especially really big ones, as they're the ones who'll be able to find the all-important large-scale solutions and change the way whole industries work. To move forward, we need to think big and long-term. Taking your own tote bag shopping is really only going to get us so far. Denmark has the right idea. As part of its ambitious goal to cut CO2 emissions by 70% by 2050, Copenhagen recently launched 13 climate partnerships with some of the biggest Danish companies, such as Maersk in shipping, Netto, a budget supermarket chain, Orsted in energy, and Novo Nordisk in pharmaceuticals. The idea is for them to work with other leaders in their industries to identify ways to reduce emissions and to help each other. We need them to help find the solutions, as we don't know all of them today, explains Mads Colby, head of communications at the Ministry of Industry, Business and Financial Affairs. Going green is good for the climate, for businesses and for job creation. It's basically a no-brainer to go in that direction, she adds. Let's hope one of Boris Johnson's New Year's resolutions is to embark on a similarly enlightened path. And let's also hope that he's better at keeping his resolutions than the rest of us. That was Venetia Rainey and that's all for today's show. Monocle's House View was produced by Daniel Bage and researched by Giacomo Harper and Nick Toomey. Our studio managers were Steph Chung and David Stevens. Coming up at 2000 London time, a brand new edition of Monocle on Culture with host Robert Bound. Monocle's House View is back at the same time tomorrow. That is at 1800 London time, 1300 in Toronto. I am Marcus Hippi. Thanks for listening and Goodbye.